Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. I don't care what movie you saw this weekend. It is not more exciting than the story we have before us. And this really happened. And that's what makes it all the more dramatic and impressive and timeless. So turn to 596 in your pew Bible if you need to, or whatever uh, version you have there before you. Mother's Day is a special day in our family's life, of course, for being thankful about moms, and for me, my wife, and mother of my children, as well as my mom. But for Sherry and I, this was the first day we came to Redeemer in 1997, May 11, 1997. So the date isn't identical, but it was Mother's Day uh, 20 years ago. Now, we've been here 19 years, of course, because that was the first day we got here. But that's 20 uh, Mother's Days, and that's a blessing. Uh, one of the great things that's ever happened to us in our life is to come to this church. And as Galen was praying, I could not help but think that he was my age when, he, when I came here in 1997. Now, I'm, don't do math or anything like that. And some of the elders were in their 20s still when this church started, late 20s, a couple that I can think of. Uh, one, maybe a little over 20, who's a grandfather now. And the other had a daughter who was six months old when I got here approximately. She just finished her first year of college. And uh, it, these years have just flown by for me. I don't know how they felt for you, but for me, they have flown by. And it's been a blessed time. And Mother's Day will always have a, a multifaceted dynamic to it for me. It'll make me praise God for many reasons. And one of them is just is you all being here. And one of the things I love most about you is your apparent appetite for the exposition of the Word. So you expect me now to do just that, and that's what I want to do, and that's what I love to do. Isaiah chapter 36. We have come to the cusp of one of the greatest supernatural interventions in biblical history, in history. One commentator said this is history at its best. Not dull recital of statistics and dates, but an account which enables us to sense the haughty arrogance of the Assyrian and the chilling clutch of despair at the hearts of the Israelites. Next to delivering Israel from the Egyptians, we would have to say that God delivering Judah from Assyria, it's got to be second. There's so many deliverances, but this has to be, in magnitude, uh, the second biggest deliverance we find in Old Testament history. The year is 700 B.C. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. Secular history has Sennacherib's reign well accounted for. In fact, there are archaeological digs that have shown bodies uh, from Assyrians, the Assyrians' exploits in the surrounding cities of Jerusalem. 1,500 found in Lachish, uh, that they're still on display because of their, their, their graves have been unearthed and they show them petrified or whatever the, it happens to a body have mummified after all, these time, all this time. And you could see the truth of Sennacherib's reign uh, in secular history. And he was at the height of his reign in 700. He has conquered all the Near East and Middle East except for this fortified city of Jerusalem, this high wall. They could take the wall, but it definitely would take time. It would not be an easy advance, although they were for certain going to take the rest of Judah, and now they would own it all. And here they are at the wall, literally within earshot of the inhabitants sitting on the top of the wall. 
is Hezekiah sends out people to meet them. We're going to read chapter 36. I'm going to read. Please follow. And then on your outline, I have seven verses from chapter 37 that caps off this part of the story, a two-part story. You'll see. This is God's holy word. This is an account of the events that happened in 700 B.C. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, which is a term for the general, from the Kish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. 
They were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told them the words of the Rabshakeh. Now in chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, who his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we study your word, please give us understanding and insight. Give us a greater awe of you and a renewed sensitivity to your holy name. As we read of this heathen general mocking your people, we are uncomfortable. But reading of his blasphemy against you strikes fear in us all. Lord, we have on display once again the surety of your word and the power of your hand. Make us to fear you and so believe your word. That the misguided words of men do not have sway against us. I pray this in the name of our Savior and our King, Jesus. Amen. Hopefully you were able to gather the picture in your mind about this scene. Uh, There are few analogies or illustrations I could give, but I want to try to paint it just a little bit more. If you're familiar with Tolkien's book or books, The Lord of the Rings, there are scenes in it that conjure up a sense of hopelessness when you see an army coming, and nothing is like the scene when Theoden, the king of Rohan, Rohan, has to save his people. Few in number because their armies are gone, uh, he has to save them because Saruman's army of uh, Urukai and orcs, 15,000 plus strong, are coming to kill them. Not negotiate or to deport them, but to kill them. In fact, I've always thought of Theoden as kind of a Hezekiah-type king. He was under this curse for a while, and then he's delivered from the curse, and he starts to lead in righteousness, if you will. And so he takes those who remain in Rohan and brings them uh, on a long journey to a narrow mountain pass with a fort uh, called Helm's Deep, and they hide in there, and they try to hole up there to buy time, hoping that their armies could come. But basically, it's, just, uh, it's, it's somewhat hopeless to anyone who's looking at the thing logically. And they fortify themselves into, behind this wall, and in the middle of the night, this massive, massive army of monsters come. Again, they're not there to, to, to practice diplomacy. They're there to run them over and kill them all. And the movie rendition does a great job, although they, you know, they make a whole movie out of a scene that's like 20 pages in the book, but the, that's the way it works. But this scene of 20,000 Urukai and orcs ready to just come in and kill 
They're just all teeming around before this wall. And you see these old men and, and young boys trying to defend this wall. And you know it's over for them. There's just no hope. And there's a sense of hopelessness. Even if you read the book, it's so well depicted, you're thinking this is impossible. It would take a supernatural intervention, which essentially it does happen that way in Tolkien's book even. I would take that for this story to be different. Imagine that kind of a scene, and you have the walls of Jerusalem with some of the inhabitants seated at the top of the wall, and you have the Assyrian army, the strongest army in the world at this point, most feared, taking everything to this point. All that remains is a little 50-mile by 25-mile region, which they've already taken all the, the towns that are outside of it. Now they come down to the city of Jerusalem with its walls, and they're ready to conquer. And instead of, like in Tolkien's depiction, Uh, them just running over, they stop and they talk. And that ends up being the undoing as they blaspheme the name of the Lord God Almighty, the true and living God. This is when the glory of Assyria starts to fade by God's hand of providence. And that's the story we have before us. But laden in this story is something that is age old and we will face it every day even in our small lives compared to this big battle. It's the constant question of will we listen to the words of the world or the word of man as opposed to the word or promise of God. And it's an everyday thing. You'll go home and you'll have multiple things that bombard you where you'll have to decide and sift through what you know to be true by God's word, whether you believe it and grasp it and live according to it. It will happen to our students. It will happen in your workplace. It will happen in your neighborhood. It will happen in your families. Will we believe the word of God or will we believe the word of man? Because the word of man is awfully convincing. It's awfully strong. It's awfully relevant. It's very popular. It even seems powerful. But will we believe the word of the true and the living God? That's the big picture of this confrontation, and it confronts us every day. All of us know it. As we observe this event... Therefore, the fundamental question, it is simple. Will we trust the word of man or the word of God? Now, there are several speeches that the Assyrian general gives in their revealing speeches. Let's look at the first. In chapter 36, the first 10 verses, we see him speak so highly of the power of man. He's thinking of himself in the Assyrian army, his king, Sennacherib. And there is a clear communication that the people are wrong if they're trusting in God or they're wrong if they're trusting in some other people. They need to trust in Assyria because right now Assyria rules. That's what they're saying. Verse 2 of chapter 36. The king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Rabshakeh, again, is a a designation. It's It's a rank like general. And there are several military divisions that Assyria put forth in battle. And they have names that match their generals. And in this case, we have the Rabshakeh. He's an individual and leader of a division, a powerful division. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So they're right around the wall of Jerusalem, and they're standing where the water source goes into and through the walls and to the people. So they're laying siege. They're stopping anything from going in or coming out. And they have stopped there to discuss this situation with the envoys from Hezekiah. Verse 4, speaking to them, Rabshakeh says, Say to Hezekiah, and notice how he designates designates the Assyrian king. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. In other words, the king of kings, the king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours, knowing that they professed that they were children of Yahweh? Do you think that mere words are strategy 
and power for war. So they're empty words if you say to us that you trust in this God of yours. God is not sufficient to save you. It's a rhetorical question, of course. Verse 6, behold, you are trusting in Egypt. He reminds them of their attempt to get Egypt's help. That broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who, all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? What scholars believe has happened is some time has passed where Hezekiah, you remember, initially took gold off of the temple to pay the Assyrians to stop them, and they didn't take it, and they kept coming. Well, over time, Hezekiah started to remove, as part of his own renewal and repentance, remove the high places. And high places were uh, a heathen worship centers throughout the land. And uh, they would usually be set up for heathen gods. But the Israelites had an admixture of, of worship of the gods around them, as well as their own god in these high places. And Hezekiah went back to the word of God, which meant and called to centralize the presence of God, at least pictured in the temple, not in these high places. So he started to remove them. But for the heathens, they viewed the more high places as the more in touch with divinity you are. And so when Hezekiah is removing them, they're judging that to be a sign of weakness, a lack of faith. And he's drawing on this to show their weakness. And essentially what this Rabshakeh is saying is, you can't trust in Egypt, you can't trust Hezekiah, and you cannot trust your God. Assyria is the authority now. That's who you have to trust. That's who you have to get whatever you gain from. Any life you will live now will be through and because of the Assyrians. He wanted them to know clearly that man was superior. Faith in man is what you need to have now because your God cannot save you. He even mocks their ability to fight even if they wanted to. We'll give you a bunch of horses. You couldn't even put enough people on these horses to do anything. We know this because you had to go to Egypt to try to get some. He even says something more blasphemous in verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Guess what? Your God told us to come do this. Now, that's mockery. That's not a confession of faith. And we know that God did, in fact, use Assyria as a hammer on the northern kingdom to bring judgment. And God could use any nation. So unknowingly or unwittingly, he's saying something that is true, that anything they would be allowed to do would be because God makes it so. But they're not saying it is a confession of faith. They're saying that you've got nobody on your side, not even the God you confess is on your side. We are it. That's the word of man to the Judaites. It's interesting as you consider the kind of elevated notion they have about themselves. It's common when nations rise, they become very arrogant. Their leaders especially take credit for it. This is true the world over. This is not unique to any one place. And so you come to a place like Assyria had come, where they, basically the known world for them, they conquered. So they have a very exalted view of themselves. And whatever supernatural view they had before about some supernatural power helping them elevate, it had transferred to themselves. That's why you read of people like Pharaoh thinking of himself as deity, and his burial shows they thought that. Similarly, in Assyrian culture, they thought of themselves as God. They were the end all. They were the, they were the ones to solve all problems and to rule all things. Now, if you think about the modern philosophy of humanism, it's very similar. It's the idea that human, uh, humankind elevates itself sort of to a place of God, where all the problems that can be solved can be solved by man. 
I mean, that's what, there are many kinds of humanism, but that's the, the kind of humanism that pervades even our thinking in our culture. I was reading on the American Humanist Association website and thinking about this, and their moniker says, and it captures it well, good without God. We could be good without God's help. Reading a definition of this thinking also on their website, so I'm taking it from them. It's a naturalistic philosophy that rejects all supernaturalism and relies primarily upon reason and science, democracy, and human compassion. Now, I'm not suggesting the Assyrians were anti-supernatural. They weren't. But they had an elevated view of themselves to the point that they would, mock, they would mock all the gods of all the other nations, and they elevate themselves. They never name their god. They are god. That's the way they're viewing it. Another description of this idea. An outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value of good and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. Humans will make life better for humans, and we don't need no help. That's the idea. The Assyrians are saying, you will have to trust in us now because everything else has failed. We are the end all for you. That's the word of man speaking. What is it specifically here before us? Man is the ultimate power. Man makes ultimate rules. The people with the most physical strength dictate the fortunes or misfortunes of others. The haves dominate the have-nots. To live, you must succumb to the orders of the dominant ones. Mankind determines reality. Man is in control, so whatever man dominates physically or even ideologically, it must be obeyed. That's the word of man that pervades and is coming at them, and it comes at us. But what does the word of God say? The word of God, even in just naming God, various titles, shows us how the word of God opposes that kind of word of man. El Elyon means God Most High. It's not the great king of Assyria. It's God Most High. Then there's El Shaddai, God Almighty. Yahweh, or Jehovah, the self-existent one, eternal one. And of course, Isaiah the prophet reminds the inhabitants of Judah earlier in chapter 26, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. There are many Bible passages I could point you to that shows the word of God opposed to the word of man. But let's just stick with a few that the inhabitants of Judah would have known. The book of Psalms. They would have had it in 700 B.C. book of Psalms done in 1,000 B.C. So for 300 years, they probably had memorized or sung some of the Psalms that gave the truth of the word of God while they're listening to the word of the Assyrians, the word of man. Take, for instance, Psalm 62. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. That's certainly not what the word of man says. Or Psalm 66, he turned the sea into dry land, recounting the exodus. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. That's the word of God. And we have already heard the word of man from the rapture. Will we trust in the word of man or the word of God? Look at verse 11. And you see the second part of the Rapshakah's speech or attempt to sway Judah to just simply surrender. And we see the word of man here promising things that really are not for man to promise. Uh, It's all based in pride and arrogance. He gives this rousing speech to begin with in the first ten verses. Then he launches into a second diatribe. But this time he makes an appeal to the Judah citizens. 
Notice the pathetic nature of verse 11. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, basically they say, shh, stop saying all this stuff in front of the people. Could you, could you talk in Aramaic? Aramaic's a trade language. It's for the educated. The people sitting on the wall won't get it. They won't hear it. We don't want to freak them out. Well, you know, we'll just talk to us. He's just, just talk, talk, don't talk in Hebrew anymore. I mean, that's, again, one of the more pathetic shows of confidence in God that you see from these three representatives of the king. But the Rapshakah smells blood here as he's able to then really strike fear. He says, Has my master sent me to speak these words to you and your master and to you and not the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you? And this is graphic, but this is what will happen if they lay siege. They're doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Boy, that would not rest well with anybody who was sitting on the wall and already was a bit skeptical, maybe critical of Hezekiah's plan here. Wait a minute, what did he say? Well, they're sitting at the water source. Nothing can come in and nothing can come out. It's only a matter of time. We'll wait you out here, and it will get awful for you. That's what siege warfare is like. You know, we don't hear about sanctions on nations. They don't work as well in modern times because of technology, but that is the impact of sanctions. It's the idea of stopping stuff from getting in or coming out to starve people out. That's the idea anyways. And in antiquity, it was far better to just wait them out a little while, especially if they had a fortified city, than to spend troops to make that speed along. And so this is what he promises them. But he's basically promising them something that man can't provide. He says in verse 13, Then the Rapshakah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Another, the king of kings. Taking on almost a deity himself. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's playing on their doubts and their fears. He's promising that Assyria will be their provider if they simply give up. Verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. What a different picture than what he just said, right? Hey, if you just put your arms down, if you open up the walls, come with us, you'll get to eat of your own vine, you'll have your own fig tree, and each one of you will get to drink out of their own cistern. But then this little verse 17, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. Now, you all know your geography, and you know they don't have vehicles or planes or anything getting anywhere fast. Where in that part of the world is there a land like that land? There ain't none. This is a lie. If you just surrender, come with us, we'll give you a place just like you have here. Now, why move them if that's the case? A land of grain and of wine, a land of bread and of vineyards. And then verse 18. You might say that verse 18 marks a massive change in history. Now, secular history will tell you of a great loss that Sennacherib had, but it won't give the details. But here we have what occurs. Verse 18, the Rabshakeh says, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. For a while now, the Rabshakeh has been using a very logical argument that makes sense. We have a stronger army than you. You cannot defeat us with your army. You have no help. We will beat you. Turn yourself in. Makes sense. Now he says, furthermore, don't trust in God because he cannot help you. 
Now, you may not catch that immediately, but God catches that. Now he's turned from mocking Judah to mocking God. He's blaspheming, and this brings God into it in a way that, at least from our perspective, he hadn't been prior. It's all part of his plan, yes. But now, out loud, the representative of the king of Assyria says, at root, we do not believe in this God of yours, and we mock him. That never goes well for people in the Old Testament. You notice that? It doesn't go well for anybody ever, and that's precisely what he does. The second part of verse 18. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, your God is just like the false gods in the other nations. Your God is false. That's what he's saying. They haven't saved them. Nobody has been saved from our hand. We even took Samaria, the northern kingdom. This is entirely turned into the face, in the face of God. God used Assyria for discipline, and now Assyria is turning on itself just as God had ordained. So the people of God cannot take credit for their deliverance, and the enemies of God will get what they deserve. And God gets 100% of the glory, which, by the way, is always the case. Your God is false. Your God is not more powerful than Assyria. God, Assyria is God. And there is the fatal error of the Rabshakeh mocking Yahweh. Verse 21, But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. F.B. Meyer says well with regard to the answer of silence that was given. He says, silence is our best reply to the allegations and taunts of our foes. Be still, O persecuted soul, Meyer writes. Hand over thy cause to God. It is useless to argue even in many cases to give explanations. Be still and commit thy cause to God. What is the word of man here in this portion? Your God is not real. Your God is not powerful. You cannot trust in God. God cannot deliver you. Your God does not care about you. You should not trust God's appointed ruler. You should bow to Assyria. You should put your faith in Assyria's ruler and provision. Your immediate circumstance requires you to turn from your empty faith in God and cave to the demands of your immediate threat. Forget your God and turn to man. That's the word of man here. What's the word of God say? What would they have known? The psalmist wrote that you are a hiding place for me, O God. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In Psalm 68, God is a God of salvation. And a God, the Lord belong, to God, the Lord belong deliverances from death. Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? It's not the great king of Assyria. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. In Psalm 145, great is the Lord and greatly do be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And even Isaiah in chapter 14 had told Judah... For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Even ancient Job would have been known to the citizens of Judah, who said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The word of God or the word of man? Which will we trust? Finally, you'll notice the first verses of chapter 37 where we have the response of Hezekiah. And it's such a relief to me, even as the preacher. Finally, I can have a good thought and word about a king in Israel. Because we have here the word of God enduring 
the temporary mocking of sinful man in giving faith to the people of God. Of course, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it goes without saying. Faith in the God who can provide. And this is a universal, timeless truth. And the response of Hezekiah gives us a model. And not much to commend to the kings of Israel after David and Solomon, and even they had their warts. But Hezekiah is a bright spot after years of relative uh, instability in his faith. He's moved, having hit rock bottom with the nation. In verse 1, chapter 37, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Unlike before, we tried to figure it out. He tried to come up with a plan to get himself out of this or go to somebody else. His response to the dilemma was realistic and he went into mourning and that's what's meant by tearing his clothes and covering himself with this cloth material that's like burlap on your skin so it would not let you rest and you would have to uh, constantly be thinking of what the situation is when you'd feel the scratchiness and you would cry out to God because of the awful situation they had found themselves in. And then he also went into the house of the Lord. So he is penitent, he's humbled, he's grieved by the situation, and he goes to the temple. And he goes to the temple with the purpose of seeking out God's prophets so he can know God's will, so he can know God's word. And he goes there with his advisors, as was supposed to be the case. The king had a certain role, the priest had a certain role, and the prophet had a certain role. So the king goes to the priests, who then relay to the prophet. Verse 2. He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered, they also covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth, in which case the mom and the baby would die. And notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, rescue us. Tell God we're in trouble. Rescue us. Rescue us now. That is not the concern. Now, it's not to say he didn't want that. But what he recognized was the blaspheming of God's holy name. In Judah, in Jerusalem, with all that remained of God's people any longer. And go to the prophet. Tell the prophet what's happening. The blaspheming of God's name. Tell God this. A day of disgrace and of rebuke. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. And here's the real request that Hezekiah wants Isaiah to hear. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. They ask for Isaiah's prayers in their time of distress. They don't pray for deliverance outright, but for faithfulness to endure the enemy of God. Whatever God's will might be, know, God, that they are mocking you. What a model this is for us. When confronted with the oppressing word of man that threatens to harm us, humbly go to God with penitence for our sin. See, seek God's word and his counsel. Then pray for God's hand to strengthen us so that we can endure whatever may come. What a message to the people of God. If it is God's will to deliver us, so be it. If not, so be it. But in either case, God, don't let your name be blasphemed anymore, and don't let your people be party to any blasphemy. Even if it means they die, don't let us ever give in to the blaspheming of the name of the Lord God Almighty. 
That's a call to God's people of all ages. God may deliver us. He may not. He delivers us all the time in ways we don't even know. But even if he doesn't, the supreme purpose is that God's name would not be blasphemed. He has saved us by his Son. The least we could do is stay true unto death and not blaspheme his name. And I know we cannot do this apart from the grace of God given to us. So that's what we're praying for. God, this is distressful. This is the situation, and they're mocking you. Do what you will. Isaiah's response begins the final chapter of this particular epic in the life of Judah, and we'll end here in this part of the story. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. Do not be afraid of the word of man with which the young men of the king of Assyria. This is a mocking tone by Isaiah towards the men who were representing the king. With which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, he's talking about the Rabshakeh in particular, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. In other words, they're standing on the wall ready to take them, and he's going to do something to change the mind of the Rabshakeh. It's hard to imagine that guy changing his mind. I mean, he was pretty, pretty sure of himself. But God's going to do something with that man that's going to turn him around and send him back. And then says, I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Isaiah promises something unfathomable for, from the perspective of man. Every day, every day you and I are confronted from a word with a word, a word from man that opposes the word of God. It could be multiple times a day you hear them. Think of all the words of man or the words of the world that we hear that we have to see them in light of what the word of God says. We must or will succumb in some way to it. We hear people say, God doesn't exist. God doesn't care. God doesn't love you. You've done too many things for God to accept you. Your sin isn't forgivable. You haven't sinned that bad. The Bible isn't true. Sin will bring satisfaction. There's no life after death. You'll be happy with more stuff. You'll be happy with more partners. You'll be happy doing it the way that feels best to you. You'll be happy striving after all the physical pleasures you can find. God is unfair, the world or the people will say. Truth, it's relative, the word of man says. What is true for you might not necessarily be true for me. There are no absolutes or actual morals. Things are not that clear. It depends on the situation. God is unknowable. The world is all there is. What you see, that's the end of it all. What you do doesn't ultimately matter. We don't mean anything in this, in this life or existence. You're all alone. God's just a killjoy. You can't change. If there is a God, you can't know him. You're not a good parent. You're not a good spouse. You're worthless. You're not really a Christian. You're ugly. You're dumb. You're unlovable. Happiness will be found in your appearance. These are the words of man. More money will mean more happiness. To be young, that's better than to be old. To have no future, that's you. You have none. You will always be miserable. Marriage is whatever you want it to be. Sexuality is whatever you want it to be. Gender is whatever you want it to be. Morality is relative. Christianity is like all the other religions. Man is basically good. God will not punish sin. There is no final judgment. All the words of men that we listen to far too much. Will we trust in the word of man or the word of God? May the people of God say with the psalmist, 
Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. We will meditate on your precepts and we will fix our eyes on your ways. We will delight in your statutes. We will not forget your word. How sweet are your words to our taste. Sweeter than honey to our mouths. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let's pray. Father, we pause as this account gathers towards the climax. We see the impactful words of men threatening to move or to shake. In our own lives, we are prone to listen to the word of man and be shaken. Give us courage and confidence in your eternal word. When the rabshakas of this world speak lies to us, we can say with the psalmist, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. When the rabshakas of this world come and say to us, God will not deliver, you'll say, no, we've been delivered by Christ. O oh Lord, make us to love your word and your truth. Make it to comfort us and to safeguard us. And make it to cause you and your glory to shine. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.